Well, welcome back to another episode of Fuku Conversation. I'm super excited today. Longtime colleague and friend, Nicole A. Guillory is a professor of curriculum and instruction in the Department of Secondary and Middle Grades Education and an affiliated faculty member in the Interdisciplinary Studies Department at Kennesaw State University. She currently teaches courses in family and community engagement in teacher education and Black feminism in interdisciplinary studies. Drawing on Black feminist theory and curriculum theory, her research focuses on Black mothering as a form of justice work. She has co-edited two books with Denise Teliaferro Bazil and Kristen Edwards entitled Race, Gender, and Curriculum Theorizing, Working in Womanish Ways, and Black Women Theorizing Curriculum Studies in Color and Curves. Her published articles have appeared in various journals, including the Journal of Curriculum Theorizing, the Journal of Curriculum and Pedagogy, Curriculum Inquiry, Teaching, Teaching Education, and Multicultural Education. She also has published chapters in key texts such as curriculum, the Curriculum Studies Handbook, The Next Moment, Critical Studies of Southern Place, a reader, and Oxford Handbook of Hip Hop Music Studies. When she's not writing and teaching, she's mom to Nicholas, oh, what a great name, who is the love <laughs> of her life, Nicole's. Welcome to Fukin Conversation. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So happy to be here. And I didn't remember the name of my son is also your name. So what a great <laughs> way to begin. Any family connections there in terms of the naming of Nicholas? Uh, I, I, I was named after a horse that was uh, 200 to 1 uh, that raced and my parents bet on <laughs> and came in. So I don't know if you have a story behind behind Nicholas, but that, you know, when my, my mom always says always believed in you, even if you were a long shot. (laughs) (laughs) Really funny. Nicholas, my son had no name for the first three days of his life because we couldn't settle on a name. My partner and I couldn't settle on a name. And so the day we left the hospital, they uh, forced us to give him a name. He needed a name to leave. (laughs) And um, it just so happened that my colleagues at uh, Kennesaw State University had this contest where they put names into this jar and I pulled them out um, during that time that stay at the hospital and one of my colleagues actually suggested the name Nicholas because it was a play on Nicole and so Nicholas's ah. name, middle name, is my partner's name, Jerome, and his first name, um, Nicholas, is a version of my own name. He's a combination of the two of us. And anyway, that is the story of his name. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so again, the, the just to think uh, like a draw, Lucky, but then also play and well, honoring your name as well within his name. Have you shared that story with him? Yes, I have. He wondered about the other names and is glad that we settled on the name we gave him. I think about that sometimes too, because uh, look, if even if we think of my last name, Ingefuk, my that who is my grandfather's uh 
uh, last name, but his 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 grandfather's first and last name. Uh, it could have been Fungafat, <laughs> and I'm I'm like Fungafat, my grandmother's name. Like ah, you, you gotta kind of take what you get, like in terms of growing up. But uh, Ingafuk, there's things that came with that, but I don't know about Fungafat. I think there would have been some things that came with that as well. <laughs> you probably would have had some childhood um, school stories around that name as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How you look, it's been so long. I think the last time we actually saw each other was that when we rode around on that tour and was that in Washington or DC for uh AERA or was it somewhere else? I can't I can't remember exactly. I know we were on a tour. I for me I sense that that was the last time I actually seen you in person. I think that was probably it. I can't remember if that was the particular AERA or if it was in another place. They all sort of run together, these AERAs. I treat them certainly as opportunities to, you know, catch up on what's going on in in our field, but also to catch up with all of the people that mean so much to me in curriculum studies. And so I think that probably was it, Nick. That that has been something difficult, although in the big scheme of things, not that difficult, but not being able to see all of you in, in, in person. I've been interviewing different people about their lived experiences during the pandemic, and I haven't had a chance to catch up with you, although I've been keeping track. And But how, how has it been in, in terms of uh, whether at your institution or in your own life the past three to four years uh, as, a, as a mom and, and in terms of your family, but also at work? Well, I'll start by saying um, a couple of things. One, I live in a very interesting state, Georgia, to be uh, living in these times. Our state, uh, I don't know if it ever really shut down. So our university did go online for, you know, March 2020 to, to May 2020. But then we were up and running. Um, the governor of the state opened up businesses, was if not the first, I think he wanted bragging rights uh, alongside his uh, Republican counterpart in the in the White House at the time, Trump. And so our institution kept open, uh, started to uh, with in-person classes. Mm, yeah. um, I can't remember if it was summer uh, 2020, but certainly in fall 2020, we were back to in-person classes. I happen to teach in online-only programs. Um, And so the second thing I'll say about being in a state that barely shut down at all, the second thing I'll say is I feel really privileged to be able to really slow down during the pandemic. I think I was going at such a fast pace as, you know, a working mom and these institutions have us so busy. And so it really offered me an opportunity, maybe place opportunity in quotes. It really forced me to slow down. And so it really has been, particularly the first year or so, a contemplative space for my family. Um, We decided, and it was a very hard decision, given that public schools were virtual for longer than my son's school was virtual. He goes to a Catholic school here and they resumed in person in 2020 that fall. And we kept Nicholas home, made the hard decision to do that. And he was one of two students in his 
in his class, one of very only, uh, you know, one of only a few students in his whole grade to go virtual. And his school really was not prepared, I think, with uh, having to deliver school in two ways, mostly in person, but also online. And so he felt very isolated. And so in those first months when everybody was online, he liked being online. And so we thought that the the transition to virtual for, you know, a whole school year wouldn't be a problem. And so I wasn't prepared, I will say, for the emotional impact that it had on him. I thought we could all sort of be in this cocoon. We still wear masks uh, three years out. Mm-hmm. And so I was under the impression that he wouldn't have struggled as much as he did. And so I found him uh, to be quite uh, frustrated on days and sad on days, Nick. And so it was quite difficult. I was not at all happy with the ways that I thought the school was further marginalizing my already marginalized kid, right? He's a Black kid in a predominantly white space. Mm -hmm in a white affluent space, you know, we don't identify as both of those categories, right? Uh, certainly we are privileged. So I found myself having a having some meetings with the principal where I hadn't done that as much. And uh, I hadn't done that as much as I, I, I did that particular year uh, because I felt like they were an afterthought, frankly. And while I understood that teachers were facing very difficult times, right? Really hard to teach uh, in two modalities that way. I've had to do it myself, not to the extent ever would I compare myself to a classroom teacher, but I felt for teachers, right? Not, Not having the proper training, not having the right resources. But for me, I took issue with leadership. And so the school was quite responsive, I will say to what my son was experiencing, but it was a difficult time. And we kept him home that, you know, that first full school year, three fourths of that year, and only made the decision for his mental health to go back. And it was a really hard decision for us in scary time. Right. So. Like in terms of when you made that transition, uh, I mean, your son would have been, what, around nine at the time? or He, he was in seventh grade. In seventh. Okay, he was in seventh grade at the time. Okay. He was in seventh grade. Yeah. So there's the, the in being in seventh grade and having to make that decision in relation to his transitions for the year with his social peers and that not being able to connect at school would have been really difficult, right? When he's seeing seeing um, everyone else going in and teachers not accommodating that. I, it's uh, like when you share that story about Georgia uh, deciding to go back so quickly, I mean, our kids, our, our kids up here, I think we were in Ontario, one of the last provinces or provincial jurisdictions in terms of schools to actually go back to in-person learning. So we were virtual, but at least it was a, a collective. And I can't imagine your son uh, being one of two students at the school. I, I mean, as we transitioned, some parents decided to keep their kids to learn virtually, but they were all virtually with this, within a school together with a group of teachers and uh, school leadership that were providing that virtual school context. So not the kind of bimoda- bimodality that you were talking about. And, and having said that, like I know the first year when my kids were at home, it was extremely, for different, different contexts for my different sons, 
but it was especially difficult for my eldest in terms of the the, social, the lack of social networking that that he was able to have uh, in high school. So I can't imagine uh, that first year for your son being at home, uh, being one of two students in the school, uh, trying to trying to trying to learn with everyone else that year. So what like I mean, what did they put in place then? Like, would he just join one the his regular classrooms like online, being the one student, or was he doing independent studies all the time? No, he was. So it was two in his class, very few in his grade. Overall, the overwhelming majority of students went back in person in this school and they they made all sorts of adjustments to the school day, to the way, you know, to the space in the school and how how things were run. But we were just scared, Nick. Right. And um, and so. We all, we all were, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to remember. Like, I don't know, like, well, I, I mean, you might remember, I try to go back, like when they shut things down here that March, like there was no one on the streets. You were not allowed to be out on the streets. I don't know if it was like that. No, in Jar- <laughs> it, you know, I live in Georgia. And so we are the family who still gets the, you know, strange looks because we are wearing masks. And so, you know, we encounter people in the grocery store very early on, not wearing masks. And, and I think very proud of not doing that, um, resisting the government mandate, as they like to say, the government intrusion in, um, into their rights. But for my son, in so in his class of, of say, 30, there were only two, one other student in the class. And in his grade, he was one of only five. And there are about 80 students in the grade. And so in a class of 30, and you're just two on the, you know, with the virtual option, sometimes the technology on the school end wouldn't work. We changed up technology in our home because we thought it was a problem with our systems. We changed all of that, right? And so the school is a small school and they were not prepared as uh, most most of us were not prepared. Um, all of us weren't prepared, right? And so being included in discussions, there were, dif- you know, there was difficulty with that, you know, when students were put in yeah. groups, he didn't have a group to participate with. You know, sometimes uh, teachers forgot to put cameras on, so he was in the literal dark in some of those earliest days. And, you know, I'm not here to sort of blame teachers at all. Teachers did the best that they could do, still doing the, the best that they can do in difficult circumstances. You know, I just, my child is sort of sort of on the mor- margins of sort of friend groups in the school and he actually liked the first three months and so I thought I didn't think that there would be such an emotional toll that it would take on him and, and so I will say that that was the biggest surprise that I had as a mom with our decision to keep him mm. in virtual school for three out of the four quarters and I will say Nick when he returned. Um, And he has some learning challenges. So let me say that those sort of uh, made themselves really apparent to us during that time. And so that really changed his future in school because now he has learning challenges and accommodations that that we make uh, and must be made for him as his educational right. 
And so I will say that when he returned to school, it changed, Nick, that I saw okay. in my own son on literally that first day. I, I hope I probably will be the first one to cry on your podcast, but I, I'm getting teared up thinking about just the smile on his face when he came back home that day. And I was just so thankful that yeah. his teachers welcomed him back, Nick. And it was as though he hadn't sort of missed a beat. And they were just so kind to my son. And so I'll be forever grateful to them for that. While very difficult in the beginning, I was very frustrated oh. and met with the principal about um, you know, what they weren't doing and how uh, we were an afterthought, I thought, as a family, uh, as well as other virtual kids. I know that Nicholas's teachers really welcomed him back in a way that made him feel that he was, you know, a part of, uh, of the school again. The positive to come out of it, though, I... <laughs> It, it is short-lived. He did tell me that he would never take in-person school for granted again, and he wouldn't say he hated school like he had said, <laughs> like he had said so many times before. So though, though since then, Nick, I have heard uh, I hate school over and okay. over again. So you know, it was it was short, short, short It was short-lived. Yes, it's a, it can. It, it, I mean, I find it interesting, like uh, just watching my own boys go through school, and there's question like like why do we have to come what's the point and then it could be one teacher that ruins it for them because they don't take an interest in them and they're like why would I work hard for that teacher right and then you see like other teachers are amazing like their gifts and the kind of relationships they really stress the relationality thanks for sharing that uh, Nicole I know that you've been writing uh, in different ways about the complexities of motherhood in relation to the work that you do. And really, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading uh, the different works that you um, shared with me. I was wondering, like when you were sharing, like now you find your son in a school, like a Catholic school, and how, I don't know necessarily I've read in any of the pieces specifically how you've been thinking about or have you thought about your own lived experiences of your own schooling in relation to attending a predominantly white educational context or place, but then also the intergenerational relationship, say, for example, with your grandmother and the history and ties to sharecropping, and then how that unfolds in terms of your, how, how you've drawn on that to inform your later work now working at a predominantly white institution that you make reference to in a university. So there's the complexities what you should just share, like, look, my son goes to the school. I didn't feel that that they were thinking of his best interest, uh, his mental health and well-being when he was outside. And now he's back and great welcome. Yeah. So I, I guess that's my question is, have you given some thought or have you been thinking or writing about those aspects of your lived experiences in relation to thinking about now what your son's going, going through at that school? Good question, Nick. I think probably a running theme throughout all of my work, right, is me making sense, at least since I joined the ranks of professoriate, certainly, you know, trying to make sense of my identity in predominantly white institutions. I was educated in private Catholic schools, 
and we probably have a whole other podcast on the <laughs> problematics of my relationship with Catholicism. Uh, and then, well, I, I just to share quickly, I I attended a publicly funded Catholic school, so I know in Louisiana they're privately funded. Yes. So. Um, But I always, you know, had a a different class dynamic and certainly race dynamic in the schools that I was educated in. These are the schools that my grandmother chose for her own children, a black Catholic school, because it was the uh, one of the only schools that black children could attend in the very small town that my mother and her siblings and my grandmother raised Mm. them in and grandfather raised them in. And so... I think my mother made that same decision uh, for me. And oddly enough, I have made that decision for, for our family. My partner and I certainly made it together, but I will say that I'm the parent in education. And so I feel like a great responsibility is placed on me to make those decisions. We happen to live, as I said, in the state of Georgia that has, I think, a very complicated uh, set of politics in the in the very place that we live. And so I live in the the congressional district of Marjorie Taylor okay. Greene, just yeah. to give you wow. context. <laughs> and so I did not I did not want my child in the public school that we live in. And, 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 you know, for those listeners who are wondering why in the world are you living in Marjorie Taylor Greene's school district? Well, when we came here, she was not the Congress person. There was some other person that was perhaps a better packaged person, but still problematic as well. But it is uh, where we could afford to live. Home prices in Atlanta at you know, when uh, we were first starting out here were expensive. And so, you know, I feel a great contradiction as a teacher educator and a proponent of public school education to send my own child to private school. That's a contradiction that I'm afraid I can't sort of reconcile, right? And I struggle every day, Nick, with the decision, particularly now that Nicholas has a, has a, I think, firm sense of his racial uh, identity now. That is a daily um, struggle that I, you know, I wonder, did I make the right call with the school decision? And so I will say that in terms of my own work, uh, me situated in predominantly white institutions in the South, I've tried to make sense of that identity right in the, I guess, within and against the specter of the servant and served politics of race and gender. I teach at an institution that is in the literal shadow of a Confederate battlefield, Kennesaw mm. Mountain. And so I will say that that perhaps we can dig uh, into this more. I have a complicated relationship in 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 white institutions, and so it's made for, I think, how will I say? It's made for certainly good writing, but lots of thinking about who I am, who I want to be, what is the importance of my voice in the space, what is the cost to me in using that voice in the space? Uh, When do I use that voice in the space? So I've written about that, um, I think, in some of the earlier work. 
and trying to make sense of that. And so I think when you layer on the mothering part of me, that part of my identity, I think it becomes certainly more complicated, but for me, it has become more high stakes, right? To be raising a Black son in the Deep South and what that all means, right? In the context of these educational institutions that I work in and that I've chosen for him to be schooled in. You uh, take that up in the your piece in the critical, your chapter in Critical Studies of Southern Place titled, let's see if I fi- find it here, but it's... Uh, when you're lo- your institution? Yeah, and you're looking at, uh, I mean, you draw an intersection sectionality in terms of Crenshaw's work and and then and then in other pieces your your later pieces kind of push that a little bit further like even the story you shared earlier about navigating the complexities of place and race and gender and being a mom uh, in relation to your son's experiences in the school I you know I really appreciate it and this this piece pushing me it provoked me to think about like look being a vice dean and working in an administration in a faculty of ed uh, in terms of what we take for granted here talking about what your lived experiences have been, even just navigating the kind of tenure track. And I imagine, because, you know, we talked to colleagues, there's not a lot of curriculum theory positions. And if you are a curriculum theorist, you're already coming in where people are like, you know, what what the hell are you trying to do? Right. What do you do? As a, as a curriculum theorist. What do you do again? <laughs> Let alone if you're, if you're challenging from an intersectional interlocking framework to address different forms of racism, systemic, societal, individual, and then add it gender and sexuality. I guess my question is now, like in terms of since you've written this piece, you end saying like, look, I mean, these places are not very hopeful. I'm just wondering, how are you navigating that now in light of uh, like the past three years? Like, uh, like there's the pandemic and I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this, but where we're since writing this piece, maybe where, where you're at and what, and if you could just share with, with listeners, what, what, what you were trying to articulate in, in this piece. Yes. So thanks for the question. It's a really good one. So let me go back a bit. And that piece, I, teach in my, I'm a curriculum theorist in a very traditionally defined education uh, department that is uh, categorized, if you will, by the teaching field discipline. So English education, math education. And so I teach curriculum foundations classes or the social foundations of education classes. And these are often what universities will call and colleges of ed will call the diversity classes. And I'm doing air quotes as I speak, right? And so I don't do this kind of feel good multiculturalism, what I think I refer to in other pieces as the the cultural drive-by approach to multiculturalism. You know, I'm I'm a scholar of race and gender, and I think oftentimes we are in institutions that are politically organized that aren't necessarily our intellectual homes, right? And so I feel like I really intersect two political spaces at the institution in my home department that where my tenure and promotion rest, as well as in African and African diaspora studies, in interdisciplinary studies where I teach and have taught Black feminism courses, hip-hop feminism courses. What I try to do in this piece is talk about the kind of response that I 
found quite interesting in course evaluations, frankly, and peer evaluations, Mm. uh, because I had colleagues come in to observe me, if you will, and give me feedback on my teaching, the, the the stuff that we have to do in these institutions to prove our worth. I liken not only in this piece, but in other pieces to a a kind of plantation politics. And while I am very uh, privileged to work in the spaces that I do, I work with really good people. It still is an institution that is steeped in uh, problematics around race, gender, class, language, geography as well. What I found is that my predominantly white students were taking their own privilege and using it, using the course evaluation as a kind of weapon against me. Some of the worst kind of stereotypes about Black women were reflected back to me in these course evaluations. And so it got me thinking about my own positioning at that time in my career as a kind of mammy figure. And that if I didn't sort of nod them along and smile and talk in the very sing-songy voice and lower lower my actual loudness of my voice, I have a teacher voice, I'm loud in the class room, right? And so if I didn't do all of those kinds of things, what I liken to the mammy figure, on top of the content, right, that I was challenging them with, right, in those isolated so-called diversity classes, the one class that they have on diversity, right, they were responding to me in very stereotypical ways. And so uh, for me, that conjured a kind of uh, Black and white woman dynamic because most of my students, 99% of them at the time were from the state of Georgia. And so I I was trying to answer questions about what that meant for me uh, as someone who is not at all a mammy figure, both in style as well as the kind of content and questions that I like to pose in, in, in in my classes. I end that piece in a way that I think my Black Studies colleagues challenged me on after publication. And they're like, how are you going to write a piece about hope, losing hope in the academy when, <laughs> when the Black tradition is steeped in hope, right? And so I still wrestle with that question. But I, I think the, that particular point in my career, Nick, about drawing on Taubman, it ended up being a, a publication. But at the time, I witnessed that in in real time. I've been in the field for that long. He gave the beautiful talk about, and the haunting talk really about losing hope and what that, and what that might mean in our space. And so it was really freeing to me, I will say, to not place hope in places that have been quite, not maybe my particular place, right? all the time, but where these places can be quite violent to Black women faculty members. When I say that it has been freeing, I think what I have tried to do in the work since then in terms of understanding my own identity is to think through what happens in those spaces. Some might say those might be fugitive spaces as they are characterized now in our field. What happens in those spaces? And so I really have 
centered the work, I think, since then about Black women. I write for Black women. I write about Black women. I am a, I am a Black woman. I write... Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I centered my white women students in that piece, but I think since then, I'm really interested about, interested in questions about the ways in which race and gender and for me, place intersect and what those, what those questions are. So your response to that, perhaps some of those students evaluations that you share in the piece is, uh, that's fine. You do you. This is what I'm about. Like, I mean, like at the end you say, and so it's um, just I'll read a little bit here. And so it is that I work against the fantasy of a hopeful future in the academy. I'm situated with eyes wide open, painfully aware that my teaching will not precipitate systemic transformation, big or small T, and how multicultural education courses are taught in teacher education programs, and that my writing will not dismantle gatekeeping as usual and the culture of power that controls academic discourses. I wonder, I would say that that's that's true here in, at our university, the University of Ottawa and our faculty of ed, in terms of putting things in place and teaching differently. But I wonder when the students go out into the schools, has it made a difference? One would hope, maybe, but hope can also be deferred. We don't have to change anything right now if we just displace it to kind of a more hopeful future in terms of doing that. And I wondered, is it being up here in Canada and just seeing what's going on in Florida in terms of this response in terms of critical race theory, and I think in Texas, I don't know how it's playing out in Georgia. Is that like in terms of what you're teaching right now, are you having to deal with that in the classes that you're teaching in teacher ed? Or students, are you seeing some students that are more open when I say in terms of predominantly white institution, predominantly white student body, are they open to different narratives that you might be sharing or different historical, this different historical narratives that you might be sharing or different ways of seeing the world other than through their own lenses? I'll get to the second question. Uh, second, let me get to your first okay. one in terms yeah, of yeah. the state I live in and whether or not okay. we're similar we... to... Uh, I didn't. I don't know if it was fair to, to place like in terms of what you said, like with Texas and Florida. Absolutely. But I do know I have colleagues. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh! Have you seen my governor and his um, rhetoric that seems to be uh, very, very similar to his neighboring, to our neighboring state, Florida, and Ron DeSantis? And so we have the Parents' Bill of Rights here as well for K twelve education that basically bans. Okay all of what I teach um, all the time. But that original bill included higher ed. As it ended up passing, it doesn't apply to us, though I think we still feel the pressure in the state, particularly when we are putting forward new courses, right? I think there there certainly is that pressure in this state with students who could very well be those stu- those parents at these school board meetings. We've had these in the state, right? We've had instances where a neighboring county to mine uh, hired a chief diversity officer. And just the, the hiring of 
the person. The person didn't even start in the job, couldn't even, couldn't even make it to the state and live here and enter her job, was basically run out of the job right at the beginning of this school year. So that's the particular context that I am living mm. in. The teachers that I teach, they are working on their master's degrees, their specialist degrees, and then their doctoral degrees could very well be these these folks, right? But I will say that I am committed to doing the work that I have always done. And so in terms of my reading list, you know, I've not made any changes and won't make changes. When you do the kind of work that we do, Nick, and for me, that includes anti-Black, anti-racist kinds of work, not I think even social justice has been co-opted in a lot of our circles. I used to refer to myself as a justice scholar. I don't anymore. I refer to myself as a race and gender scholar for that very reason. You know, I think even social justice has become the new multiculturalism in some of our spaces. Mm. And so these are the risks that we take. It, It is a calculus that I would certainly prefer not to have to make, but I know full well the risk that I'm taking and the work is that important. And so for me, you know, I haven't made any changes and and won't make any changes. In fact, I think, I think the work is even more critical now. And I find that there are pockets of students and these are the kinds of spaces I am interested in fostering that are really excited about this work at this time. That's what I think the work is really about and the future that I hope I'm collectively building with my curriculum studies colleagues across the nation, the world for that matter. And what I will say about your comment about hope deferred, which I certainly appreciate, you know, I was really moved by Angela Davis and they asked her a question about, don't you sort of lose hope in this work because these changes, uh, and this was during the Trump presidency, right? When everything was just sort of hyper visibilized uh, for us, not that things got any worse necessarily for those of us who you know, have to live these realities every day. But she said that when asked, you know, how do you, how do you avoid becoming hopeless, becoming just, how do you not give up on doing this work? And she talked about sort of the long arc of struggle, right? That, that our enslaved mothers before us, even though they didn't see their chains uh, taken away uh, through changes in law and policy, their small acts of resistance put out into the universe to make the space for us to be able to do the work that we are doing. And she says, in the work that I am doing today, I hope that generations from now that I have created enough momentum in the larger sphere, in the universe, in the cosmos for the kinds of changes that I hope to see, maybe not now, but in the future. And so that I think is the kind of hope and uh, the concept of time uh, that I really am moving into. Yeah. Well, you say even in this piece that uh, the different positionality of, of Black women and as mothers in location to kind of historical movements and, and how you saw in the reading of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, a, a different way of addressing this current time in terms of where 
women, the intersectionality of women in terms of race, gender, and sexuality, and that being at the fore, but also tracing that history. I just, again, like, I mean, this praxis you're talking about, you, you, you write, a black mothering praxis must often negotiate the tensions between the individual, personal tragedy, for example, and the collective resistance, the private grieving, and the public mourning and loss, dehumanization, and legacy humanization, and go on and, and in terms of sharing some of, uh, from an excerpt from, from her piece um, that I thought, uh, you know, kind of resonate in what you said there. Uh, I'm going down to it. She said, uh, this is from her, her book, my, uh, my story is more than all of that. It, it is the story of how I was able to pull myself back from the brink of desolation and turn my life around by digging deep within my soul to pull hope from despair, joy from anguish, forgiveness from anger, and love from hate. And I really appreciated how you situated what's going on in your life in, in terms of the macro context of the U.S., but also thinking about the historical that, again, coming back to how you said that the intergenerational relations between different generations of women and how within each of those generations, they've sought to address the state violence in different ways. In the later section, you talk about grounding critical quality of research for justice in black mother in a black mothering lament. How do you see that maybe coming back to some of your other work that we didn't take up? And I know we talked talked about this as an, an aside. With Sabrina Fulton's uh, and, and Tracy Martin's memoir together, Rest in Power, um, their memoir about the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement around their son's murder by George Zimmerman. And um, as a, you know, former English teacher, um, I was interested in Black women's uh, memoir and took an interest in uh, Black mothers' memoir as a, as a, as a genre. Uh, and so I originally came to the work through, I guess, the intellectual register, right? And during the reading of that work and, and living through uh, this new time of uh, Black Lives Matter and the ways in which young folks have uh, reconsidered what these movements even look like, Nick, was very interesting to me. And certainly from a lived experience as a Black mother with a son who is, during these years, was, you know, pre-adolescent, but who is now 15 years old. During that work, I found, uh, reading some cultural criticism about some reviews and cultural criticism around uh, Sabrina Fulton's uh, memoir, Rest in Power, I came across and didn't know that it is it had existed, Mamie Till's memoir. And of course, Mamie Till is, is Emmett Till's mother. And she had a memoir. And I will tell you that I ended up reading that one right after I, I read Rest in Power. And I, I don't know, something in me really changed the way that I look at myself as an academic, as a Black mother, as a academic Black mother, all of those subjectivities and the intersections of all of those, uh, as well as me thinking about my own lineage, biological lineage to Black mothers, my own mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, who I did not know, only know stories about. 
I don't know, Nick, I began to see myself not as contained within uh, one location or even one time period. And so I think with this uh, vein of writing, have begun to think of myself and what I write and how I write in much different ways. And, and when I say this, I mean that I am listening a lot now to what needs to find itself on the page. I don't, I no longer start with a concept or an idea only that sort of lives only in the intellectual register. But my writing now is much more embodied, much more, it's very close, was some distance, I would say, uh, between me and, and what I was writing, though I write, auto, I have written autobiographically, right? I'm a student of Carrera, as well as critical race, feminist Carrera, thankful to uh, Bill Pinar, as well as Denise Taliaferro Bazil. And so I, I would say that this work um, has been a lot harder for me to do. And so when you ask me about the ways in which I think through these last few years and that kind of mournful hope, you know, I, I try to think through questions that I have as a Black mother and place those questions as well as my voice alongside Audre Lorde. Who and, and Black feminist foremothers of mine, right? I see that kind of through line, you know, for me as an academic, as a theorist, but I also uh, am trying to place the voices of my grandmother, my mother on the page through me, as well as think through what all of that means for my future, my son's future, the future of Black children writ large as a collective. And so I think this moment, particularly, you know, we're, we're right on the heels. I want to mark this moment. We're on the heels of and still in mourning uh, for Tyree Nichols and his mother and what happened, the state murder of him, what happened in Memphis. And so lament and its particular use by women in particular, I thought a useful way to think through the placement of the voices that I try to bring together in the writing. And so that's what I was trying to conceptualize, really, a a, a research method for this particular uh, article. It was a a special themed issue around new kinds of qualitative research in this particular moment. And it was during the pandemic earliest years of that I began to write this piece. And so that's the space that I was in and continue, I think, to be in. The work I'm doing now is about thinking through a kind of framework for this Black mothering praxis that I've been trying to trace out and what mothering looks like at the intersections or the nexus of race, gender, class, location. How do you see that in relation to some of the work that you're not, you do as well in terms of hip hop, 
whether that's in relation to your earlier work in terms of feminist hip hop, or now I had mentioned to you about, you know, your thoughts. And I know it just, it's recent, but even Rihanna and Rihanna's uh, performance at the the halftime uh, Super Bowl. And for me, I didn't see any of the negative press, but I did, I, I did in terms of trying to make sense of what was going on and the kind of commentary in terms of cultural the cultural moment of that in relation to your work. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that in relation to the work that you're doing in this piece. That's a really uh, big question. I think you, I know. Moved, <laughs> you moved from Mo- maybe till Mobley to... Rihanna, um, Rihanna. Rihanna. <laughs> uh, you've got two minutes, go. <laughs> so let me, let, me, let me speak about... Um, the ways in which I think the the placement of voices and and the lived experience and yeah. the theoretical sort of live in the space of the, the lament for the the couple of pieces that I shared with you and and have written about I think is is a kind of a strand of my work as of late. But also I want to, and we'll get to Rihanna because I think that Jennifer Nash, a black feminist contemporary scholar has challenged me to think about what what does black mothering mean uh, as not only a space of trauma, right? But how do we free black motherhood from only that particular space? And so I think that question is maybe what I'd like to sort of move us to and answer your particular Okay, question, great. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that what I would like to say about the pieces that are trying to trace this Black mothering praxis through Black feminist theorists alongside these mothers and their memoirs about the state murder or murders without any accountability by the state of their children and my own life, right, as a Black mother. And so particularly in the last three years we've talked about, right? And so Nicholas has been, as all of us have been during May 2020, right, and the sort of co-optation of Black lives matter all of a sudden to multinational corporations, right, when we witnessed, we bore witness to the murder of public lynching of um, George Floyd. Yeah. And so um, I think that I was moved toward these couple of last pieces because he asked his, his father and me, what is Black Lives Matter and why why must there be that movement? And in his sort of very logical way, he then said to us, then I must not matter, right? And so he, that question sort of uh, reverberated for me in 2020 throughout this work. Do I matter? He asked his dad and me. And I think that really is the crux of, it really is the foundation, the purpose for this latest round of writing for me. And that is, in what ways might we learn from Black mothers who have lost their children in very public ways, who've had to grieve in public? In what ways, what might we learn about humanizing Black children in the space of education? 
right? Because I think that for me, that's the work that I do both as a mother. How do I humanize my child to these teachers who are dehumanizing him in in very uh, obvious ways to him and then some very subtle ways that I see as a mom? And so I'm constantly in my negotiation and tension with schools as many other Black mothers across this country, right? How do we make our children human in an effort for you to then treat our children in ways that you would treat other human beings that you do to other children, right? And so that I think is the project of the work. That is the project of me as a mother and working those tensions, exploring those tensions. And I think understanding the contradictory space that Black women occupy, right? And I'm going to circle back and then move us forward to Rihanna, Nick, because I haven't forgotten about that question. No, no, no. It, well, in, look, just before you do, before yep, you circle yep. back, in the other pieces talking about like whether it's the Monaghan Report and vilifying uh, Black mothers, but even the mothers coming forth to mourn publicly, and, and what I appreciate about this piece is like, even as they... They call for us to mourn or grieve, like mourn publicly. Then they're vilified after for sharing or, or calling into question the state and state violence and the different actors. And and this piece at, at the end, you remind us. You say, and again, I just want to read this piece before you maybe come back to that sec. The second part of the question that I asked, you said, like, who better than the black mother to remind the world yep. of the intrinsic value of black lives? Who better to remind us that Sandra was a beautiful, intelligent trombone player? That Trayvon was an ordinary. Ch- teenager who loved clothes and shoes, but also did odd jobs for extended family in his spare time, that Jordan loved deep conversations about God and who would not eat popsicle unless he had enough to share with his friends, that Mike Mike, the nickname given to him by his family, was a techie in love with computers, and that Brianna loved to make her mother's chili recipe and ride motorcycles and was planning to buy her first house. Such ordinary details are the counter-narrative provided by each mother, and this counter-narrative individualizes each Black victim and challenges challenges dehumanization of them by the state. Black mothers give us a public reminder that Black victims of violence are human and deserve justice from the state. Yeah, I think Lucy McBath, I also, in those pieces, I think I quote, if not the ones I gave you in other places. And, you know, she's a congresswoman uh, from who served initially in New Gingrich's old district. So Georgia is a very complex place politically, right? This black woman mother who who is mother to Jordan Davis, I think (laughs) taught me an important lesson in all of the things that I have read and viewed and mined really through this work. And she said, you know, I don't stop being, she said, I did not stop being Jordan Davis's mother when he was murdered. I then thought through what that might mean for us as a witnessing public, right? What might it mean for us to learn uh, from them Because as Amadou Diallo's mother said, my job is to give the story of my child back to him because of the ways in which we have uh, dehumanized him. The state dehumanizes all of these victims, right? And so giving that story back, she Mm. says, is my job 
uh, as a mother now. And that is, I think, telling for them, but also for us as a witnessing public. And so the the work is complicated, right? I, I struggle with the ways in which I tell the story. Is it even my story to tell? I try to weave together voices across generations, space, and time. And so I've been wrestling with these questions as of late and the moves that I think my work will take next. I'm not sure yet. As I said, I I will be listening to what I think I am told needs to be put on the page because I'm always, from the earliest writing to now, trying to interrupt normative discourses around the identities of Black women. And that started with my work in hip hop and now with Black mothering as praxis. And so I was asked to do a, a keynote talk at my home institution, which I really found it was an honor to do, to be asked at, at your home institution to, to have the opportunity to, to think through your work across time. And that's what, that's what that paper allowed me to do. And I, you know, I thought that I had come to the mothering strand, Nick, fairly late fairly late in life in terms of my academic life, right? But what I what I realize is that there is a mothering strand through my work almost from the very beginning. And so I talk about in the dissertation, for instance, the ways in which these Black women rappers enact a kind of public pedagogy for us to humanize notions of what a complicated Black Uh, womanhood might look like and and what forms it takes. And so, and then, you know, writing about me as Mammy in the institution, right? And and so I hope to revisit, actually, this year, Hip Hop Turns 50 years years old. And so I want to think through Missy Elliott again, who I have continued to follow. I don't follow so much of hip hop Probably most of it I don't follow anymore, but I do uh, follow Missy Elliott. And I will say, I will say from the earliest days to now, right, she is a mother figure. She has a Twitter account, I think, just to pass on this wisdom. If you follow her, you will know that she is passing on what I would consider to be mother advice to the you know her her fan base Uh and i think i didn't characterize her as an afrofuturist back then but her work really speaks to i think that particular construct because i think her work 30 years ago if you look at missy elliott's work from third from literally 25, 30 years ago, it still holds up as really the future of hip hop. And so I think coming back to your question about Rihanna and her Super Bowl performance and what it means for her as a musical artist to to take the stage 
as the lone performer, right? Usually these Super Bowl performer performances have lots of guest stars. She didn't do that. I found that interesting. I found that she was clothed in red in this kind of cocoon suit, if you will, with the, the men dancing all around was quite interesting, right? And I think Rihanna as a figure, not an unproblematic figure, yeah. right? Uh, but as uh, a billionaire, musical artist, entrepreneur in various kinds of businesses, I think speaks to the kinds of contradictions that I was trying to uncover yeah. in my very, in that earliest work, in my dissertation, right? And so I think Joan Morgan, she had a, what I think is a, is really one of the most important works that I have ever read when chicken heads come home to roost about hip hop feminism. And she, and she talks about hip hop as a space that fucks with the grays, excuse the, mm. the language there, but it is a space that plays in the grays. And so when I stop trying to look for positive representations, which is how the work started, Nick, in my dissertation. Yeah. Stop looking for positive and negative representations. I fell into that binary trap, right? And, and when I started to look for the contradictions, right? In what ways are these contradictions, these public performances, these lyrics, these, these video images, I think that has been a central question of all of the work that I have done over the years. Well, and you see that over time, like how you come back to trouble, the contradictions, even at the start, our conversation about your own relationality to thinking about, you know, where you went to school, where your son goes to school, that it's more complex than just this is the way we do it or this is this is the way we don't do it. You know, this is the last thing, but I, I wonder, like, because I hear you talking, you say you're going to come back to this, maybe Missy Elliott's work is like, like I was thinking of the come up and oral history of the rise of hip hop. And I wondered in juxtaposition to that, you're an oral history with the, those artists in terms of what they have to say in response to the last 50 years or looking at their work. I'd be interested. And I only know of that because I, I, I heard uh, on a podcast, uh, Jonathan Abrams being interviewed about this, this book that he's put together in terms of drawing on oral histories, right. And selfishly in terms of my own work and doing, doing oral history, educational research. So. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, for me, in terms of all of your work, and then thinking, as it came to light, I didn't want to assume and then seeing Rihanna, and thinking like, wow, like, I don't know, is she pregnant or not? And then it came out after that she was, but then, in terms of your work, thinking about being a mother and there, and then I was, I couldn't even imagine how, you know, in terms of the heights that she went to on the stage and being able to perform or choosing, choosing to perform. It's such it pushing back to what might be historically acceptable or not during Super Bowl halftime in different ways uh, she's push, she was pushing back when that came to light. So I just very interested. I, again, I'm always curious in terms of what you have to say and I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to write if you do choose to write about this in relation to revisiting some of that earlier work as, as you move forward. So just... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it was quite interesting, frankly, that she did the performance her way yeah. And I think that is, I think that's the spirit of the work that I have tried to do in the academy, right? Didn't, you know, I don't exactly fit disciplinary in 
these disciplined boundaries. I ask questions about Black women in ways that I hope complicates our thinking. And so I think that performance really speaks to those larger themes. And that's why it was interesting to me. It was understated. It challenged what a Black mother should be doing, right? Um, She's suspended in the middle of this football stadium. And in a way, uh, showing the world some complexities that I think are really interesting. Anyway, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate the question. Well, and I again, I don't want to because, uh, like you've said in your work, like the corporatization of this and, and what transpires during a Super Bowl and halftime, and you do speak to that when you wrestle with your chapter that addresses Obama and how Obama frame frames different perspectives in relation to his historical positionality and Michelle Obama. So again, it's easy sometimes for us to say certain things when 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 we're in those when different positionalities, but I don't want to leave. I don't want to stand our conversation with that saying, like, look at this again, when it's uh, the Super Bowl and a halftime show that's uh, sponsored by huge corporations to do this. Yeah. And well, and I will say on the backs, uh, the literal backs and legs of yes. black men. Right. Rihanna, as I said, is not an uncomplicated yeah. figure. She was apparently asked to do the Super Bowl before, didn't do it in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, why she's chosen to do it now, you know, is quite problematic. But I think as a figure of a Black mother, I think she raises some interesting questions. Yeah. Um, So I never imagined I would be um, talking about Rihanna in this um, conversation, Nick. So thank you. (laughs) We've taken a turn. (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Nicole, yeah. for joining us on Fukin Conversation. I, I really appreciate it. your work is groundbreaking. It's not like more people need to read your work. And uh, I hope that anyone who's listening to the, the podcast, that you go and check out uh, Nicole Gilry's work. Uh, her latest uh, essay, again, to provoke us to think about our own complicit, uh, complicitness in state violence, Black Mothering Legacies, Theorizing Laments as a Form of, of Justice Research. I can't wait to read comes out next, uh, Nicole. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on, on our podcast. It's been great, Nick. I'm an admirer of your work. And so I appreciate your kind comments and the opportunity to do something I hadn't done before. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs>